Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to This Week in Marvel, and I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M, and I am joined by C.B. Sobolski, Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief. Hello again, everyone. Yes, so this is our second This Week in Marvel Unlimited Reading Club of 2019, and we're following along with Marvel's 80th anniversary. Yep. Every month, we're going to look at different decades, and this episode, we are in the fabulous 50s, and uh, an episode I kind of call uh, Tales of... Either the 50s or Tales of Atlas Comics. Yeah. Either way. Tales of Amazing Artists. Yeah, it really is. That, that's sort of the thing that's going to be our theme here because there's some really dynamite and stuff. And it's a great episode to follow up the first one with because with Marvel Comics, number one, it really focused on a lot of the characters. And that's where the, we made a lot of the connections to what current and present day Marvel is and where some of our origins came from for those characters and the storytelling and the layouts. Here, it's some of the most, the giants. I mean, the architects of the Marvel style they established, uh, you know, back in the day, just doing all non-superhero stuff and all these cool comics. Yeah, it's really neat. So we're going to talk about two issues of Tales of Suspense and two issues of Tales to Astonish, because part of the decision that I came to in picking these and then, you know, we agreed upon uh, was that, truth be told, we don't have a ton of 1950s comics available on Marvel Unlimited. And part of the remit of Twim URC is that our reading club is something that we want to make sure everybody can be a part of because it's so easy to subscribe to Marvel Unlimited to get in there to read the comics. Uh, so we always only pick books you can see on Marvel Unlimited. So as I was going through the list, I thought these would be neat to discuss together. And then we're going to get to some questions and comments you guys have sent in via hashtag TwimURC later in the show. Before we get into things quickly, I want to mention that there's a companion piece to this, and that's our 50s episode of Marvel's The Polist, in which Tucker Marcus and I discuss a wide array of books from war titles to the superhero, the attempted superhero revival to mystery and horror stuff. Uh, so with that in mind, let's get to them tales. First things I, I wanted to mention is both these tales books, Tales of Suspense, Tales to Astonish, Along with a book called Strange Worlds, mm -hmm. which we do not have on Marvel Unlimited, which bummed me out. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, Strange Worlds, all three of these came out September 2nd, 1958. The month prior to that, August of 58, we released no comics. Wow. Yeah. It's real weird. There had been a downturn for comics for about a year. Lots of finagling of the line and direction had shrank very small at a certain point to something like six or eight books per month. No books. And then we get into September of 58. And I look at these three books, the two Tales books and uh, Strange Worlds, as the mark of a major shift for Marvel. So you could say it was almost a fresh start Oh, one, with some new number ones. One could say that. <laughs> also, the talents in these books is wild. So um, I mean, it's, it's a murderer's row. I mean, we'll get into it. But yeah. I mean, from Heck to Kirby to Dicko. Busema, Burgos, we talked about yeah. last episode. I mean, it's it's amazing. Yeah. Tales of Suspense, number one, has five short comic stories and a two-page prose story. They are mostly suspenseful sci-fi tales, a few in the future, a few with aliens, a few with themes and lessons, solid B-movie, twilighty, zony affairs. What's interesting is, like, when we get into a lot of these comics, there's no writer credits. No. Like, there's no writer given. I can often find the artists on a book, whether it's by sight, by a, a small signature, like Ditko would sign yep, his book. Every now and then I, saw, I caught a couple of Ditko signatures. Yeah, so. and some others, but we have ways to, to get these. But writers, I can't tell. I'm assuming some of these are probably Stan. Yeah. Uh, you know, assuming, you know, it could be the artists themselves. 
I would think probably the Dick Cohen's, a lot of it, he did the heavy lifting himself on most of it. They feel like it too. Yeah. Like completely. Uh, his his kind of philosophy on life and, you know, a lot of the, the beliefs that he held, you, you know, come through in so many of the stories that we read when, through, through these four issues. Totally. But we're talking about the artists. I want to get into this. For Tales of Suspense, first artist is Al Williamson. Yep. Which was neat. Uh, he's Colombian-American, like me, which I had no idea about. Really? I was doing some research on him. I thought that was super cool. He worked with Frank Frazetta and Wally Wood. Uh, he did tons of work for EC Comics. Tons of Atlas work on Westerns and war and sci-fi. Just all around. Flash Gordon, Star Wars. And later on, he would be known as one of the guys who really elevated what it meant to be a great inker. Yep. Mm-hmm. Which is really neat. And, you know, he went from so many of the classic sci-fi tales and some of these to working on Star Wars, which is, you know, appropriate as well, because he was able to bring with his inking, you know, that sense of, of space and not just like the new shiny space, like the grit of space that Star Wars was so famous for. So yeah, he gave like, it a, a tactile feel yeah. that mm-hmm. is so important to what we love about Star mm-hmm. Wars. Second one, drawn by Don Heck, one of the co-creators of Iron Man, who, of course, worked on tons of Atlas books through most of the 50s, lots of Avengers work and other 60s Marvel stuff. Am I right? He helped design and create a lot of stuff. Yeah, back in the day. He was one of the guys who, you know, might not get as much of the credit as someone like Dicko or Kirby or Romita might get. But, you know, he was always there putting his all into this. And, you know, there was so much of the Marvel Universe that was, as you say, designed by him that just didn't get credit for. Yeah. Your face lit up when you mentioned John Buscema. Yeah. Uh, Why? Uh, I've always been a huge Buscema fan. You know, he's drawn some of my favorite comics of all times in the Marvel Universe and now, you know, with us having bring Conan back, that was one of the drive force. I was a huge Buscema Conan fan. And John is one of those guys, and it goes to show in the, in the story, especially in this issue of Tales of Suspense, that he could bring anything to life. I mean, he was in the bullpen for so long, and he taught so many of the young up and yep, uh, young up-and-coming artists they're just tales about where they would have lessons where they would just put up a whiteboard once a week and they would say anything that they thought of you know tiger or a pirate ship or this and they would see how many lines it would take for john to be able to put on the board until they could clearly identify what it was and sometimes he'd start drawing stuff and see how long it would take them to identify it wow that's super neat yeah no and he he just was a mentor to so many of the artists that we know and love today it's just incredible the legacy that he left and again here's we're seeing where he got some of his early start on stuff that was not superhero yeah uh he started at marvel in the late 40s lots of work through the 50s sort of came back to marvel in 1966 with avengers bits of spider-man submariner Great Silver Surfer run in the 60s. The cover to Silver Surfer number four is one of the most iconic covers in the first two decades or even ever at Marvel with, you know, Silver Surfer and Thor facing off. We've homaged it. Other companies have homaged it. It is legendary. He did 200 or so issues of Conan, some some wild number all told. And that's all great. But arguably his most influential project, and I think which ties into what you were just talking about, CB, was How to Draw Comics the Marvel Way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The book that he and Stan Lee did together in 1978, which, I, yeah, it seems like anyone who grew up of like a certain time period had that book, whether or not you were an artist or wanted to be an artist. It's been reprinted 61 times. Wow. Fun fact for everybody listening today. That's cool. Yeah. And his brother is Sal Busama, a great artist in his own right. Mm-hmm. So there's also this Robinson Crusoe story that I, yeah, we're both, you start laughing about it. I'm just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't definitively find an artist for it. I found one resource stating that Larry Lieber drew it, 
which I didn't even realize as I was going through this that Larry actually has a bunch of artist credits. Yeah. Before he, he really, own, right? mm-hmm. yeah, before he really gets started as as the writer that we know, because Larry, brother of Stan Lee, but he's done so much, helped create Thor, Iron Man, Ant Man, did tons of Rawhide Kid. While Stan was, you know, working as an editor for Timely, Larry was also here. He was an art assistant and working his way in the bullpen and doing all kinds of stuff. I think one of the legendary things about him, he also drew the Amazing Spider Man newspaper strip yep. for fifty years. Mm-hmm. 50 years. That's, I don't care what anyone says. That's a monumental achievement. His last strip was actually in 2018 when he was 86 years old. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. And we just saw him recently at one of our screenings. Yep. We, yeah. We saw him for Spider Man, I believe. Yep. Into the Spider Verse. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last story in here by Steve Ditko. Yeah. I mean, whoo And you can tell right off the bat, you know, because. It's funny when you go back and look at these stories, some of the design elements that carried through to all of Steve's work, be it in the different comics here or in eventually when he was doing superhero stuff with us, be it Doctor Strange or, or Spider-Man. You know, you could take panels out of some of these books and show them to people and be like, who's that? And people would guess, hey, that's Norman Osborn because he liked to use that long face type with that same kind of hairstyle in different places. And I think there were a couple stories even where I think he used Jack Kirby as reference because you can see some, of, uh, <laughs> some of, of the pictures that we've seen of Jack Kirby represented in some of the panels of this artwork. That's so cool. At this point... He had been at Atlas working for about two years. Okay. So, uh, you know, this is still early in, like, the, his Marvel them. Yeah, you know, he came up as a student under Jerry Robinson, you mm. know, who was working, uh, you know, on the, the Distinguished Competition, yep. you know, created the Joker. And then he came over to Marvel and started refining his style, especially his storytelling, working with some of the guys who were working for us. Yeah. I think I saw Jerry's name pop up a bunch when I was looking at Animal Comics that we okay. had done in the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. Where do you want to go? Do you want to go to um... – so Why don't we go one and one Let's go to, uh, you know, the, uh, the Tales to Astonish. You know, all the issues you picked for us for, you know, this episode. And most of the, ep- the uh, covers in this series all have – Monsters on them attacking people. You can see a common theme, whether it's, t- whether it's astonishing or it's suspenseful. Yeah. <laughs> there are big monsters attacking people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, think about the, the time and the place, right? So it's 1958 yep. for the number ones. Godzilla comes out in 54. Yep, 54. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have the B-movie craze. You have movies like Them and, and all kinds of fun monster things popping up. And it's just like, well, let's jump on it. Yeah. And it, it works. So Tales to Astonish number one. We got some Kirby. Oh, yeah. It's just so great to read that story. And it's so, it just jumps out at you and it's in your face. Yeah. Just like it does when he was drawing the superhero comics. Yeah. You know? The very first, this story here is very King Kong-like. Mm-hmm. Some King Kong dudes on a boat, they find a massive, bunch of massive creatures. Unflattering 50s depictions of unspecified island natives. Yes. You know, a <laughs> massive creature, a guy's visions of exploiting the monster. Aside from some of the, like, you know, the stuff that we're like, oh, you know, it doesn't feel right now. It is really fun. Yep. It's completely gorgeous. Has these awesome massive turtles. Those turtles, like... They were pretty cool. Yeah. They look a little bit like Gamera, who yeah. I love. I love Gamera. Color uh, difference sent them apart. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. There's a neat idea in this story, too, about size-changing pills. Yes. Which is fun, and it's a little bit of a pim Particle precursor. Yeah. Uh, and this, then I love that has always has that, like... 
we haven't seen him for 10 years. He couldn't escape. You know, he's been trapped. And then they all manage to escape together. They turn a corner. And, oh, here's a boat I've been saving for. <laughs> yeah. That rainy day when I want to get out. And he just gets in it. And they, they, and they, they like they get out away. of their shackles so yeah. easily. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. It's great. It's fine. <laughs> the, the interesting thing about all these is too, they, they're between three to seven pages. Yeah. Nothing is long. They have to tell a complete story, which they all do in very short amount of time. That's a difficult thing. Yeah, and you could see, again, you know, going back to the storytelling of this period, how important the narration captions were to the story. Almost every panel of every page includes a narration caption at the top in some way, shape, or form that will lead you into the dialogue of what the characters are saying. They don't let the characters speak for themselves. There always has to be that kind of overarching narrative to the entire tale. Yeah. So then we go from Kirby right to another Ditko story. We've got a guy who's an investigator of the supernatural who looks like he'd fit in perfectly with Doctor Strange. It's super cool. There's a fun little story, lots of amazing Dicko poses and anatomy and looks, and just that weirdness he does so well. Yeah, and it even gave a precursor at the beginning because it was called I Know the Secret of the Poltergeist, but then it had like a little star and it explained what a poltergeist yeah. was, you know, <laughs> a ghastly ghoul from folklore or something like that, I remember. Yeah, yeah. As I was reading the story, I was like, you know what? I could see like a producer on the movie Poltergeist, having read this story as a kid, me, me, like it's sticking with them. Like yep. the house, it's haunted. The like the feeling of something. All the amiss. different little things that were going wrong at first that were leading up to the bigger haunting. Yeah, and... it was great. So this here's an interesting bit about the third story. It's either by Paul Reinman or Carl Burgos, depending oh, okay. on my source. It didn't strike me as Burgos. It might be because Burgos' style did shift a little bit over the years. It's hard to say. Honestly, regardless, it's a neat tale about the menace of greed and bigotry with robots and atomic oil and the yeah. world of 2095. Mm-hmm. I like that one. But again, a lot of these stories, like just when we go back and we talk about the origins of the Marvel Universe and say a lot of what Stan and Jack and, you know, Steve and John created, were pulling themes from the real world, the fears of that time. This is only, you know three, four years older than that. And it was the same themes. It was, you know, it was greed. It was overpopulation. There's the fear of the unknown, gamma rays, cosmic rays, nuclear bombs. I mean, it was very persistent themes that ran through all these stories, just like it was in the early Marvel origins. Yes. Yeah. Stuff that's relevant then, still relevant today Mm -hmm. in some ways. The last story uh, was, was real cool, drawn by Jack Davis, set in the year 2008. Which was fun. Uh, it's thwarting an alien invasion by deciphering a sort of secret code. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was interesting, too, because they had to simplify things so much easier to keep the story going along. And here's the newspaper man who, to save the world, calls his editor who says, yes, I think this is a crisis. We can call in the resources of the world to your aid. And they galvanize like, the military yep. right away. <laughs> There's a pro story in here, a little bit of art by Don Heck. It's a weird one about it creates a fan that brings down an alien ship that's causing a heat wave. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It's fun. It's, I, it's, it's in there. I, I read it through and I was like, okay, that yeah. was interesting. You know, That was two pages. Mm-hmm. All right. So the next two issues, these are issue nine of both series, yep. Tales to Astonish and Tales of Suspense. And so while the first issues came out September of 58, both of these came out December 28th, 1959. Actually, they come out the last week of the last year of that decade. It's sort of like, we're out. This is how we go out. And it's great. Tales of Suspense number nine has a really neat cover by Jack Kirby and Dick Ayers with a gnarly monster called Diablo. It appears that he named himself Diablo in the story. (laughs) Yeah, he's just like, I'm Diablo, guys. (laughs) 
the the first story is that Kirby Ayers story. It's called I Saw Diablo, the Demon from the Fifth Dimension. Yeah. Title's so good. They're always so great, much fun. You know? It's a fun tale of Venice from beyond, how humanity barely defeats it. But I love the way Jack draws the smoke monster. Swirly and scary and super cool. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you read through the story and it ha- has that ending. He's foiled by his kind of mystery that you couldn't really visualize until again the protagonist had to explain exactly what he did because the art didn't truly encapture it. So. Yep. The second story is about a, I put this in quotes, mystical yogi named Shandu, and it's by Doug Wildey, who also created Johnny Quest with Hanna-Barbera. Oh, I didn't which know Which was that. real neat. Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you look at this character, Shandu, you think about Johnny Quest has this sort of, this character with the, the young kid with the turban, and like he was using these themes it's like three pages long it's about this mind over matter jerky americans but wildy's opening panel it's got the lighting the detail the fashion in it it's a beautiful panel yeah and it it just bad guys broken out of jail it's another common theme we see here you know because and the way the yogi dealt with it was he was able to visualize it with the use of blacks and whites kind of the negative space was really beautifully how it how it brought the light and he used just only got these three pages. How am I going to visualize this? All right, I figured out a way to do it. Yeah, he nails it. Third story is by John Forte, who did a fair amount of timely and atlas work for us, but he had more of a mark uh, with our distinguished competition. He did some neat Bizarro World stuff over there, which you can kind of see his flair for fun and weird in this story. Uh, it's a guy learning hard lessons about time travel and trying to game the system like a, like a Biff Tannen or something like that. And it, they were so matter-of-fact about like yeah. time travel, too. Like, oh, there's no security here. Oh, here's the time machine. I saw the, the blueprints and the diagrams on how to use it in the science magazine. It's yeah. like... Just give away all that stuff back then, you know. And it's set in 65. He goes to 75. By 75, they're like, no, time travel is against the law. That's great. But, man, the coolest thing in this issue may be the comic by Ditko. You've got the opening splash page that says, Earth will be destroyed. destroyed. And it's in all caps. This really neat-looking art of the planet and this angry monster dude. I, like, I stared at this. I was just drawn in. He's got this plan to destroy humanity so his people can live on Earth. But the twist, it's so delicious. It was interesting. Always in my mind, and a lot of readers who were listening probably doing the same thing, trying to connect it back, you know. Yeah. There's, again, some some early kind of seeds of what we would eventually see in the Marvel Universe, which shows some of the contributions that that Jack had. Yeah. You know, on top of what he was with with Stan. Yeah. The last couple of panels, so fun, sort of getting that reveal, that twist, that, like, Zoom out. Oh, so great. Don Heck gives us the final comic, which is The Return of the Living Robot, which was fun because we're used to, during the 50s, so many of these books being one-off stories. But this is actually a sequel to the story It Walks by Night from the previous issue, and it really does work as a sequel. It sort of stands on its own. You don't have to have read the previous story, but it's, it's real neat. It's like... Turns into a robot horror superhero story. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I found interesting about this was so many of the stories, almost all of them, I think, that were in here were clearly based in the States, you know, in New York or in Central City seemed to pop up a lot. But here we moved to the UK. And even the dialogue had a little bit of that British flourish to it in a way. Yeah, there were a couple instances of that. I was like, oh, you're very, you're just going right for it. It's a lot of fun. This one in particular, I could see someone playing with this world again of like this secret group of robots who are protecting humanity like that it's such a fruitful idea yeah a gift that keeps on giving yeah right person to come and take it and run with it you know know, we can do in this day and age Mm. uh there's a pro story called the mirror it's real weird 
I really enjoyed that. Yeah? Yeah. I'm glad. I think it's a story that is very timely to today even. Yeah. You know, when you, you, you get older and you look at yourself and have you accomplished what you've accomplished in life, but are you truly happy? Really made me reflect on a couple of things. Oh. I get the joke there, the pun there too. <laughs> reflect upon my own CD. life. <laughs> uh, Mr. Comic Book Sobolski right here. Uh, we got Tales to Astonish number nine and this one. Oh boy, this is my favorite cover. It's Jack Kirby monster cover featuring Droom, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep, Droom. Uh, a Godzilla-like monster. Yep. So cool. I... One of the things I noticed, though, if you, all the other issues that we reviewed, yeah. the cover was the lead story. It was only this issue of Droom, where Droom was on the cover, but I forget if he was the, the, the second or third story in here. He didn't kick it off. Like, I expected yeah, to, like, not... every issue, you open the cover, and, oh, boom, there's the splash page of just the same monster or the same group of characters you saw on the cover. Except for this, and you open it up, you're like, wait, <laughs> what <laughs> is this Droom? genie about? Yes. Because <laughs> the first story is a Jack Kirby story. It's a genie, and it's another sequel story. It connects to uh, the the previous issue of Tales to Astonish. But again, you don't have to have read the previous issue. It's about a terrible human who becomes a genie and then goes wild with infinite power. But there's, of course, this big moral lesson at the core. I really enjoyed that story. Loved it. Just the way the crazy looks that he was able to draw on the genie's face in each of the instances he went around the world. It was scary almost. I mean, it was like it was burned into my my mind. Yeah. I do want to make sure we give a shout out to the crew who's working in our collections group because they are help cleaning up some of this art. And the versions that we're looking at here are gorgeous beyond belief partially because they've res- we've been able to restore the colors, restore yep. the line work from, you know, we didn't ha- we don't have digital versions of these from back then. No, I mean, so they were working off the scans of the issues or the film if we had it. Yeah, so. if we had yep. it. Uh, and they do tremendous work. So part of why all this looks so good in Marvel Unlimited is because we have a really great team downstairs. Yep. As good as Jack's splash page in the first story was, though, which is great. Yep. Dicko's may be better. I, you know what? I'm going to say Dicko's is better. It's in the second story. The title... The title's got big letters on the left, and it's the setup and the story premise above it. Really creepy image of a guy in deep space beating an invisible wall, and it reminded me of Get Out. Yeah, okay. Um, oh, I never put that together, but I see where you're going with that. Yeah. And I was just like, I, it's another Dicko piece, and I was just like, this is gorgeous. Yeah. And more so than any other stories, this one was pure Ditko. It was like examining who we are, our place in the world. How do I break down the boundaries of my everyday life? Is yeah. there something more out there? And it's something he continued to do in Doctor Strange. And this one, I, I really read it and thought, wow, this is just a, a real, this is one of the comic masterpieces. It really is. Yeah. yeah. I, if anything else, I hope people are just exposed to these just to see that you superheroes aren't everything that these guys did and they were masters at everything that they touched Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's the shot of the scientist face colored in blue at the end the level of panic and horror that is evoked in one just the one panel it is so good yep our third story is the cover story yeah the dream story which you know again it's that whole kind of overpopulation and the making things bigger, smaller, kind of the, the you know, the, the pin particles kind of uh, yeah. conundrum again that, that they had here. Yeah. But it was funny because it's like, oh, doctor, I thought you didn't study live animals. I thought you were in the museum. Oh, that's the deadly animal that my friend gave me on his journey here in an open box, like sitting on my desk ready to escape. Yeah, it's so fun. Yeah, this is five years after Godzilla comes out, and it is very Godzilla-y in a lot of ways. We've got Don Heck art, another story about size changing, everything going horribly wrong, fun story, twist ending. That twist ending, too. It was like yeah. tens of millions of years later and then millions of more millions of years later. And it's Earth. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I love 
like the weird way that the lizard looks in this story. Yeah. Also, the the story is called "I Saw Droom, the Living Lizard." Of course, he's a living like mm-hmm. he's a living lizard. Yes, I don't. It's great. Whatever doesn't matter. Our next story is called "Fangs of the Bear." Oh. This is another one by Wildy. That was so much fun. It, I've read this story before. Oh, it creeps. It gives me like goosebumps. It is the most modern of all the comic stories I think that we've read of last month and this month in here because it has the least amount of text. It really uses the dialogue to tell the story mm-hmm. uh, more so than actual just word, ca- uh, you know, narrative captions. And if you looked at the storytelling, it was a lot more uh, cinematic, I would say, than some of the other ones, which were more like illustrations from from books and places. Yeah. So. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a robot bear teddy bear thing and i don't know it's real neat it's real weird Mm -hmm. i enjoyed it a lot Uh, our two-page pro story in here is one about time travel a guy who builds a time machine shows it to his friend they get into a civil war battle the secret hero of the revolutionary war it's a hoot it's a a lot of fun and you know there's always a lot of fun in time travel stories and he always leaves you guessing at the end about you know how does time travel actually work because everybody has an explanation for it so in these stories back then it seems like there's two time travel stories which had kind of different outcomes but also different philosophies on how time travel works yeah so those are the four books. Before we get into our tweets from you guys, uh, I just want to throw a couple things at UCB just to, and the listeners. January 3rd, 1950. Uh, some of the books we were publishing at the beginning, All True Crime, Best Love, Black Rider, Cindy Smith, Girl Comics, Hetty of Hollywood, Joker Comics, Junior Miss, Justice, Kelly's, Kid Cult Outlaw, Little Lizzie, Love Romances, Love Tales, Lovers, Man Comics, Millie the Model, Miss America Magazine, Patsy Walker, Reno Brown, Romance Tales, Suspense, Teen Comics, True Adventures, Venus, which is awesome, Western Outlaws and Sheriffs, Whip Wilson, Willie Comics, and Sports Action. That is January and February for more or less. The range of genres and content that we were putting out back in those days. And... Think of how many num- the number of titles that was, right? Yeah. By the end of the decade, we had thinned down to, and what we were publishing was A Date with Millie, Kathy, Millie the Model Comics, Patsy Walker, Kid Cold Outlaw, Two Gun Kid, Tales of Suspense, and Tales to Astonish. Wow. You know, some of those characters have remained around through most of the publishing history from Atlas, you know, timely back into Marvel. You know, if you look at Millie, Patsy Walker, yeah. uh, Kid Colt, Two-Gun Kid, names that are very familiar with modern comic book readers. But you go back and hear some of those other titles, and it's like some of them, I'm sure some of the readers and people who are listening have never even heard before. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we did bring a couple of those back for the genre books that we did this year for the 80th anniversary. Mm-hmm. But it makes you want to just to see the, the, the depth and the richness that Marvel's had from, you know, the beginning of when we weren't doing superhero comics. Heck, Yeah. All right, we're recording this a little bit early, so uh, we've got our tweets in here from Karis Pollard. Uh, Karis is awesome, one of our regular listeners, and she says, Some thoughts on this week's Twim URC. I've only read the two number ones so far. We'll add more if I get the chance, but might be busy. First, thanks for these reads. I used to not like the old stuff, but going back and thinking about them has given me an appreciation. What stands out to me most is the really interesting use of color. Mm-hmm. I will continue with Karis in a second, but I think... Part of that is, yes, the the way they did coloring back then, but also part of it is the team downstairs and how they restored these, right? Yeah, and, you know, each artist had their own way of coloring things or doing color guides back then is the way that a lot of it was done. And, you know, when it came to, like, Kirby, it was more in-your-face, bold colors, a lot of two-tone stuff, as you saw in the, some of the stories we saw, like, you know, the, the purples and the yellows and the, the contrast of the reds and the blues to really make it stand out. Whereas other artists, you know, uh, Ditko being, being one, tended to go in and, and 
work with the, the color artists and points to make things a little bit more realistic, you know, to kind of fill in a little bit more of the tones and the shades mm-hmm. and to make it look more like a little more like the real world. Neat. Karis continues saying, there's no ability for subtlety in the printing, so it goes bold and interesting and really works. Having figures picked out in flat red to draw attention to them is a great choice, for example. And of course, there are really cool designs for the monsters and the Martian fauna and the aliens. There's a sort of turtle diplodocus, 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 uh, Karis, you got to give me some phonetic pronunciations up in here. I don't, yeah, the giant turtle that's in Tales of Suspense number one that she particularly loved, which we did as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. It is terrific stuff. I think it was uh, experiment XYZ. Oh yeah. Ah, <laughs> wow. You, how you keep all this straight and you're managing the entire current line of Marvel <laughs> comics. Whew, someone's going to yell at me for taking your brain away. All right. Uh, last one from Karis. She says, I also really noticed what felt like early seeds for characters that we'll see later. Very good observation, Karis. Something mm-hmm. we mentioned earlier. A living planet, for example. And Lieutenant Morrow feels a lot like Cap, even down to the costume. Wow. I didn't notice that. I'm going to have to go back and check that out with that in mind. Yeah. Oh, there's one more from Karis. And she says, I also found it fascinating seeing how these issues are really pushing a moral. They're not hiding the agenda they have. And how modern those morals feel. Mm-hmm. It's a shame that we're still having to fight bigotry and greed and grapple with issues of caring for Earth slash overpopulation. She is like right in it with here yeah, with us. Is, exactly what we were saying. You yeah. know, a shame we haven't been able to overcome some of these things and they are just problems that persist. Totally. So that is our This Week of Marvel Unlimited Reading Club, The Tales of the 1950s. Our March Twim URC is going to be about the 60s. Woo-hoo. And uh, we're still deciding on books. If you listeners have suggestions or requests, I did see some requests for some early number ones, which is, sure, we could do that. That's easy. We'll see. Tweet us at Agent M at CB Sobolski and use hashtag TwimURC. I don't know if you've got thoughts about what you want to talk about. I am open to so much. It's almost too much to try to figure out. I think it's really going to be a continuation of what we've been talking about these first two episodes. You know, we talked about character last episode. We talked about artists this episode. And I think the combination of those is going to carry us seamlessly into whatever we choose to do for the 60s. And one of the things I'm going to particularly want to talk about, though, is kind of looking at these covers made me think about the cover design that they were using with superheroes in place of monsters and things to draw people in. I think there's some interesting comparisons to be made there. I love it. Perfect. That's why you're the boss, Steve. Thank you all for listening. I'm Ryan. And I'm CB. And this is Marvel. Your Universe.